And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and a broom. A performance-enhancing broom. My name is John Cullen. I'm a comedian, podcaster, and for 20 years, I was a semi-professional curler. And I want to tell you the story about how a single broom almost imploded the 500-year-old sport of curling. We felt like we were bringing a knife to a gunfight. It's the story of a superstar and his fall from grace. I was being dragged through the mud. It's the story of two brother entrepreneurs with a dream. (laughs) I said, that's great news. It's a story of intrigue. I still don't understand why we want to keep his name secret. The full story has never been told, so I'm going to tell it. Broomgate. How a broom almost killed curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. To listen to Broomgate, search for Broomgate in your favorite podcast app. That's all one word. Broomgate. You're listening to The Leaf Report with Canadian Press National Hockey writer Jonas Siegel and the Athletic TO's James Myrtle. All right, James, uh, we're going to talk about a lot of different things today. We're going to talk about who's better, Austin Matthews or Patrick Laine. No, we're not going to discuss that angle of it, but we are going to talk about Laine and Matthews. The podcast, of course, is brought to you by Babsocks. Visit babsocks.ca. James has his on, as always. Uh, we're also going to talk about Mitch Marner, uh, his absence, Josh Levo's emergence, uh, William Neander a little bit, your conversation with the Maple Leafs general manager, Lou Lamorello. Uh, we might get into Frederick Anderson, maybe Brent Burns, a non-leaf topic. I just wrote about him today. Uh, it's Wednesday. Uh, but let's start with uh, Patrick Laine, Austin Matthews. They obviously met this week for the second time. Uh, Matthews in the Leafs got the best of them in this game in overtime. Obviously, Laine had the hat trick the first time around. Um, where do you want to start with Matthews Laine? Mike, do you want to start? Let's actually start with the quote from Mike Babcock. Uh, he spoke about both players and kind of the rookie seasons that they've had. Let's hear that and then we'll react. Well, I think it's real special. I mean, you know, the other part with the Laney kid is he's playing with Shifley, in my opinion, is one of the best centers in the league. I think he's a real hockey player. So you you get the added bonus, you know, in fairness to Austin, we're playing with two kids all the time, so that's a little bit different. But uh, I think uh, they're both real special players, size, skill, uh, you know, look like they're going to be significant generational-type players as long as they've got the drivetrain to keep working, and they look to me like they both do, so they're exciting to watch. Okay, so Mike Babcock talking a, a bit about just the different players that each guy plays with. How much do you think we should factor that in when we're kind of evaluating both rookie seasons? When there's that big of a gap between the line mates, it, it, you have to factor it in. It has to be a big factor. I mean, the difference between playing with Mark Shifley and playing with Zach Hyman is it's immense. And the other winger has kind of moved around on that line A line. It's been Perot or uh, Ehlers. 
those are both good players. I mean, Perot is a really underrated two-way player. I mean, he's a guy that does really well in terms of possession, and I'm sure he's on that line to make it better defensively. I was looking at it. If you look at the what they call the with or without you stats, which is basically how players influence possession, basically Austin Matthews, everyone he plays with, their possession elevates. It gets better. And as a possession player, you know, he's in the 53, 54% range, uh, higher with some guys, lower with some other players. When he's away from uh, Hunwick and Polak, his possession's very, very good, as you might expect. And he's played, a, I th- last I looked, he's played about a third of his ice time with Hunwick and Polak, which is a lot because he's not getting out there with the top defensive pair because that's typically Kadri's getting out there with the top defensive pair because they're doing the shutdown role uh, a lot of the time. Um, but if you look at, I was looking at this the other day, I was thinking of writing uh, another comparison between Matthews and Line, but I did not because I thought the world doesn't need another one of those. But I was just looking at the numbers. And uh, if you look at Line, when he's away from Shifley, he's down at about 46% possession. And when he's with Shifley, I think he's up around 48 and a half, something like that. Neither of those numbers are fantastic, but to be at 46 away from Shifley, I mean, you can sort of see which players are driving play with the with or without use. And with Matthews, it is, have you ever seen some of those charts that they do? Like they call them like a spider chart and are they pull, which direction are the players pulling the results? Matthews is pulling the whole team in one direction. And that, that's a clear sign of, uh, like that's what Crosby does. That's what Bergeron does. That's what someone like Kopitar does or Dowdy, or that's kind of the effect Matthews has. And that's not line A, like line A strengths are elsewhere. I thought in the game last night that he was the two goals were unbelievable. Like they're fantastic. Other than that, I didn't think he was that noticeable. And possession on the night, I think they finished it around his line was around twenty nine percent. So they they also they were on the ice for goals against as well. I mean, they know they produced some goals, but so that's that's where I weigh in on that. I guess why you have to like what what kind of gets misconstrued sometimes when we talk about this stuff is that we're putting down line A and that's not it at all. It's just when you're really trying to separate like how good each guy has been, these are all the little things that you have to factor in. You have to factor in who he plays with. You have to factor in his position. The fact that that Matthews is a center and has been going up some nights against top lines, you have to factor that in. All these little things matter when you're trying to get at it. It's just with 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 Lion A, and it, the weird thing is, so last week I, I was thinking of like I, I do this weekly column and I try to come up with a, a unique idea. And I'm like, hmm, the, the the Calder Trophy race is really close. Like, how do you sort between Marner, Matthews, Lion A, and forget about all the other rookies? And then just before I noticed, oh, the Leafs and Jets are playing on Tuesday night. Um, so when you're kind of looking at both guys, don't we have to kind of separate all these little things and say, you know what? Line A has been really, really, really good in terms of like scoring. Like he's putting up numbers like Ovechkin did in an era where it's harder to score. You mentioned the goal he scored on Tuesday. Few guys, two goals, but like one of them, like he, I don't know how he gets it off that fast. Um, is there any argument you could make that would say that Line A has been the better rookie and the best rookie? Like, could you, if you were to play devil's advocate, make that argument? I honestly don't think so. And I, it, I I said that on the radio in Winnipeg yesterday and the Jets fans went totally insane. And they're just, like to me, the underlying numbers speak volumes. Like they're, to me, their they're goal scoring and points and all of those things aren't that much different. If you if you take out, like Liney's got a bunch of empty net goals and I know he's missed games, but 
I just I just lean towards Matt. I mean, we, what we've seen from Matthews, he's just such a complete player. Like he has the ability. I thought that game Sunday in Carolina that Matthews was fantastic. He has had his last five or six games have been unreal in terms of possession, just the way that he's been taking over games. I could certainly see over the last what do they have like 23 games left I think I could see Matthews going on another run here where he piles up a lot of points he had three assists against the Jets he just looks like he's getting back into a groove or something like that after a a little bit he was a little bit quiet could you make an argument and and for people who think that Line has been the best rookie they will not like this question but could you make an argument that Mitch Marner's actually been better than Line and actually been the second best rookie or does that become like I don't know, it's Toronto bias and everything like that. Has Marner not had the same effect on the Leafs that maybe Lyonnais has had on the Jets? I mean, you look at what he does in their power play. You look at how he's propped up Van Riemsdyk and Bozak. You look at some of the passes that he makes. He's I, I know he's first you know, among rookies in assists. He's around the league leaders in that respect. Like, Could you not make that argument, or is that pushing it too far, do you think? I think you totally can, and you said forget the other rookies, but Matt Murray has had an unbelievable season for Pittsburgh. I don't know if he's played enough games to really push into the conversation of the top three, but his numbers are fantastic, and we know from last year that he's a good goalie. Zach Warinski is under basically a number one D at 19 years old in Columbus. Like if it was another year, if it was another year, we would probably be talking about. If it was a normal year, we'd be talking about like Nylander versus Warinski or something like that, and then that would be a good Calder class. But then. I just think with the numbers, like that, the 40-goal mark in this era for a rookie, not only that, but like their point totals I was looking yesterday, Line is 13th in the league in points right now, tied for 13th, and he missed eight games with a concussion. Like that is, is mind-blowing. It doesn't make, he's almost at a point a game. He's 53 and 55 games, I think he's got. Matthews is 18th in scoring. They're both in the top 20 in scoring. I mean, the only other time that we've seen this in recent NHL history was Crosby and Ovechkin. It's the only time it's ever happened. Actually, I was going back and looking at like how close Calder Trophy races were in the past. One, it's really funny to see how some of the votes are cast. Like there was one year where I forget what year it was, but like Toby Enstrom got one first place vote. I just wonder who these people are that give these random players first place votes. Anyway, but the point is what will happen if like right now you mentioned line has got more points. What will happen at the end of the year if he's got a couple more points, maybe a goal or two more? Do you think the conversation will go that he has to be the Calder Trophy or will the people who vote on these awards look at all the underlying statistics and say the better player has been Matthews? What do you think will happen there? Someone wrote about this. I can't remember who it was. Well, I think Greg Wyshynski did it at Puck Dead. Did you see that? He did like a... He said why Line A will win or something like that because of the point totals will have a huge sway. And I, if I'm remembering correctly, I read it in a haze yesterday morning. I think he said Chris Drury was the last rookie to win the Calder that didn't lead the league in goals or points. And I think that the goal leader was, I want to say, Milan Hayduk, and the assist leader was someone else. And I think that Chris Drury was probably one because he was close in points. I think it was only like two or three points. And there was kind of that intangibles argument there for him. That's really interesting. Hmm. I don't know what will happen. I think if it's this close to rest of the way, Matthew should win it. But I don't know. Who knows what some of these writers will decide. Um, what? Well, that's what I was going to say is that 
there's going to be a lot of votes going to whoever leads in goals and points. A lot. A lot of people, I think a lot of people hastily fill out that ballot at the last minute on the, it's usually the Wednesday before, you have to have it in it before 7 p.m. when the games start on the Wednesday that the playoffs start. So a lot of people, you know, a lot of, I mean, in fairness to people, I mean, that's a really busy time of year. I mean, your season has just ended of covering the team. Your team, if your team's missed the playoffs, you've got all these press conferences to go to and locker clean out and you've got a lot of big stories to write and you're booking travel to go to the playoffs. And, you know, it's, and to do that ballot properly, to really dig into all the stats and compare all the guys for the Norris and the Calder and the Hart, it takes a long time. Like to do it, it probably takes five or six hours to do it properly. Yeah, because you have to dig into the numbers of each guy, and it can't just be the obvious guys. Like, and and I we're going to talk about Brent Burns later, and maybe I'll just bring it up now. He, based on the season he's having, is is obviously the obvious choice to win the Norris, and maybe that's right. But the one thing I couldn't like stop thinking about is minutes. I feel like sometimes we discount the difference in minutes. Like Brent Burns plays a lot; he plays twenty five minutes a game. Drew Doughty, let's use him as, as an example. I think he plays like 27, 28. Three minutes a game over an 82-game season. That's a lot more hockey to play. Like, I think I calculated it's like four extra full games. Like, you were playing the whole time. Do we need to, like, factor that in to some of these, I don't know, like, let's use the Norris as an example. Does that need to be factored in? Well, I know some of the analytics guys... Uh, insist on using those rate stats for goals. They they like primary points, they call it, which is goals and primary assists. So they like primary points per 60 minutes because they've, they've, done, they've done like luck tests and correlations on future predictability and they can measure how much something is a skill to how much it's just random. And second assists a lot of times are just random. So that's why they use the primary points per 60. It's interesting and I think it, Generally speaking, if you have a big enough sample size, primary points per 60 pulls out the best players. Like I know, I remember I looked at the end of last year, uh, took the last three years combined at the end of last season, who led the NHL in primary points per 60 at five on five. And you know who it was? Crosby? Connor McDavid. After his like rookie season of whatever, 45, 50 games. Well, it's funny you mentioned that. I was looking up primary assists yesterday, the leaders, to kind of see who was actually first and like who was good and who wasn't. Connor McDavid first. And it was like, I think he had 29 assists and 22 of them were like primary assists. And it's just like, it's really funny that you mentioned that because I was talking about it with someone the other day. Like Nikita Zaitsev on one of the goals uh, on Tuesday night basically does like just makes a first pass out of the zone gets gets an assist and that's worth the same as William Nylander setting up Leo Komarov anyway that's like a total side topic but let's talk about Mitch Marner he's missed uh, three games it'll be four games after Thursday it's not entirely clear when he's going to come back I think he'll probably be back on Saturday based on the timeline based on you know the injury based on Mike Babcock basically saying we think he's ready to play. He thinks he's ready to play, but the doctors are being cautious. What's become apparent to you with him not in the lineup? They're less of a three-line team. There have been some games. This is what I wrote after the Saturday game against Ottawa where Bozak and Van Riemsdyk were basically terrible. I just wrote that like that's a third line if you don't have Marner there. And the only reason it 
which is crazy if you think about it, because that was the Leaf, that was two thirds of the Leafs' first line for years and years and years. And I think that that's probably why they were finishing bottom eight and bottom four, and you know, and they had an elite player in Phil Kessel driving that line, and some of it's skating ability. I mean, you need a guy that can skate really well because that's not Bozak and Van Riemsdyk's strength. Their strength is not speed or skating. So, what I've noticed a lot when Marner has been in the lineup is. Normally, it's the center that's breaking the puck out of his own zone and getting it through the neutral zone. And lately, it's been Marner. And I've just noticed he's had, and even in the offensive zone, he's had the puck a lot when that line's on the ice. So when he wasn't there, it's been an adjustment. But so I remember writing that, real, being really critical of Bozak and James Van Riemsdyk. And then they go to Carolina and they have a really good game. And, you know, the possession comes up. James Van Riemsdyk makes two really nice passes to Connor Brown. I thought even against Winnipeg that that line looked a lot better. Connor Brown's a good player. You know, I think that could be a good line, but it, there's no way it's going to be anywhere close to as good of a line as when Marner's there. Do you know what it, it kind of reaffirmed to me? And and maybe we knew this and we probably did, is that James Van Riemsdyk is not a guy who drives offense. Like he is a finisher. He he obviously did make a, a couple nice passes, like you mentioned, to Brown. But like he is not the guy to, to build your line around. He's kind of like a finisher. He goes to the net. He can score around the net. But it was the same thing with Phil Kessel. He was never that guy who was making things happen. He was kind of finishing things. Does that make sense? And like when you get into the conversations about like what they're going to do with him, I can't, if I'm them, I can't give him seven years, 40 million for that, and especially at his age, especially for his skill set and all the other stuff, it just doesn't work for me. Did you get any of that? Yeah, I mean, I've been saying that for a couple months, and people are like, "You're crazy!" Like they're going to have to replace this and whatever. And it's like, yeah, they are going to have to replace it. But I think you could bring in a Kapanen or give Levo more ice time, and it's not going to be as good as James Van Like No one's saying that, but if you're paying those guys one or $2 million a year, they don't have to be as good because you're freeing up cap space elsewhere. I mean, the concern with Van Riemsdyk is at 4.25, which he makes right now, he is easily fits on your team. He's he's perfect, but he's seventh on the Leafs and even strength ice time among forwards. You cannot pay a guy that is seventh on your team and even strength ice time six or $7 million a year. And you cannot pay him that when he's 29 years old. You just, you can't do it. You know, maybe there's, if you're a contending team and you've got a good cap situation, you want to bring Van Riemsdyk in as your last piece to put in, maybe it makes sense. But if you're the Leafs and you have all these young guys that are going to be coming with contracts soon and you don't need, I don't know, like offense is just not a need for the Leafs. I think they'll be able to replace Van Riemsdyk's goals and point production by committee, kind of, by just having a balance, more balance in their forward lines. They've got good young offensive players coming. I mean, the Marlies... I think have won 12 of 15, their last 15. I mean, there's there's talent there. Yeah, and, and the thing with Van Riemsdyk is the contract is an important part because once a guy stops being under value, he loses some of his value. Like when you start paying Patrick Kane and Jonathan Taves a $10.5 million cap it, they are not as valuable as when you're paying them, I think, 6.5 or something in that ballpark. Um, you mentioned Josh Levo. He's been playing with Kadri and Komarov. It's it's the funniest thing because like you and I would watch him and we talk about it in the press box and I we I think we both would say the same thing like he looks like he's just a, te- a step too slow to play in the NHL and suddenly they put him with better players or a better center in Kadri and there's like he looks like a player like he looks like someone who could play in that type of role especially with his ability to shoot the puck 
what have you noticed about kind of the connection that he's had with Kadri? I think even on the fourth line, to be honest, like when they first brought him in and Soshnikov was hurt, I, I mean, this is, to me, this is a different Josh Leval than I've seen with the Marlies or with the Leafs before. I mean, he always, he, he's a lot more confident with the puck, the mood, the plays that he's making. Um, you know, I, I'm a believer now that, that Josh Levo, I always thought he was kind of going to be like a specialist that you would use on the power play and he would be kind of like a 12th or 13th forward and because that's what he's been in the past. But he's clearly worked on his game. He's clearly gotten better. I think this is a sign of that development can have an impact with a guy like that. And he's not just a shot anymore. You know, he's his possession has been fantastic this season. I think he's at like almost 60% in the, what has he played, eight games, nine games? You know, I'm I'm a believer, and and you, it's an example of chemistry is a thing too. I mean, Kadri has has played very very well, and it hasn't been talked about probably enough. I mean, he's just been very involved. I like the way he played against Winnipeg, and that not just like the the nasty stuff and all that, but like he puts his head down and goes to the net sometimes now, or like he's added some elements to his game that are really really good and. That line with Komarov and Levo, I mean, that's they're hard on the forecheck. They were cycling a lot. It was their best line against Winnipeg. Yeah, and, and we should talk about Kadri just based on the year that he's having, and, and it's kind of gone a little under the radar, maybe just because of the young guys. But the offensive numbers are obviously there, but you know the role is obviously a big thing. It's funny, uh, uh, Chris Johnson, our buddy, is writing a story. It might already be up by the time you listen to this. But he was talking to me about, Kadri's kind of evolution in Toronto and just how much crap went on for a while, how many times it looked like the organization wasn't sure what they wanted. There was like the suspension. There was like the Dallas Akins calling him overweight. Like there have been a lot of like flare ups with Kadri. And speaking of like being patient in development, if they didn't exercise patience with Kadri, they would be in a, a much worse position because he is like perfectly suited to play the role that he's playing now and presumably will play the guy who can go against other top lines. If you need him to, who can give you some offense, who's good on the power play. He's feisty. Like he's got an edge to him. I don't know that this could have worked out better. And it's funny. Like you go back to that Brendan Shanahan presser type thing where he says he's suspended. Then they give him a one-year contract and basically say, put up or shut up this evolution that he's had in his career in Toronto is just crazy, I think. He is the last I looked he had more goals than Malkin, more goals than Tavares. You know, it's you know, I I wrote I think it was a month ago how how Kadri has arrived as an elite goal scorer and the reaction from other fan bases in Canada was like, How can you call this guy an elite goal scorer? It was like, Well, look at his numbers. I mean, he's like top fifteen in the league. He's on pace for what it whatever it is, thirty two or thirty three goals. The interesting thing with Kadri is that the analytics on him were always really positive. They always really liked him. You know, I always thought that he could be a good second line center. And now it looks like now it looks like he can be a fantastic second line center behind Matthews. I mean, what that's what you want in the NHL is like real strength down the middle. And I I think that if you're a Leafs fan, you should hope that the depth next year is Matthews is your number one center, maybe upgrade one of his wingers or even two of his wingers in terms of just giving him better players to play with. Um, Kadri's your second line center and, you know, you can debate which one you play against the, the gets the tough matchups at home. 
Um, and your third line center should be William Nylander and, and let William Nylander just destroy third and fourth lines. I mean, I think that would be such a dangerous combination for other teams to try and handle. The one thing you didn't mention with the goal scoring is his shooting percentage is a bit high. Like it'll probably come down, but like, I think you and I both agreed earlier in the year that he looks like a guy who's just going to be like a 20, 25 goal guy every year, 50, 60 points, which is really good. Um, and it, it's funny, like you think of other teams that are trying to find that type of person. And I, I don't know if this is a perfect comparison, but like I was thinking of like Ryan Nugent Hopkins in uh, Edmonton, kind of trying to be that type. And like, there's just something that's like not the same. And I don't know what that is. And maybe it's like, he's kind of got the perfect combination of everything you'd want in that role. Like he's, he's got some skills. So like when you put him against another top line, they have to worry about his offense. They have to worry about him playing in their zone. Like, you know what I mean? Like there are all those little elements that kind of make it work for Toronto. And then you, you think of the contract that they signed him to. Do you think it was a mistake from the cadre camp to take that contract? Like given how this year has gone, would it have been better to take a short term deal? Or do you just say, you know what? Security is important. I know I want to be here. If the team's going to win, this is a good contract for for me and them. I think you and I discussed it at the time when he signed. and I mean, it, you know what it is? It's a sign of how much he likes playing in Toronto, how much he wants to be a Leaf. I mean, he's he's a local kid. For all of the garbage that you're talking about that he's taken and all of the knocks and all that, you know, he really wanted this. And I think you have to give him a lot of credit for the work that he's put in. He has gotten better, even though there was always that underlying talent. The interesting thing with Kadri is he's always been so supremely confident in himself and his abilities. You know, like I look at his OHL numbers and they're good, but they're not like there's players that put up numbers like Kadri put up in the OHL that don't become what he's become. To say that he's a really great second line center, you look at the goal scoring and the guys that he's outscoring. I mean, there's he's a key part of the top power play unit. You know, there's a lot of things that he's bringing to the table. I mean, you can make the argument that he's one of the, I'm trying to think of the right number to put him in. I mean, what, top 60 forwards in the league, 40 forwards in the league? I mean, like he's he's there. He's in that group and he's put himself there. Well, I was I was trying to signal to you like top 40 centers. Maybe he's, I don't know, maybe top 30 centers. I don't know. Like, I don't know where he falls in that, in that ranking. But anyway, big big thing for the Leafs like that he is that guy because I also think what we didn't hit on and you maybe touched on it is expectations are more in line with what they should be like he should the the expectation never should have been that he's going to be your guy to be your number one center of a cup team that that was never going to happen and yet because there was no number one center who filled that role people were always like well can Kadri be that guy and that was never reasonable and now it's like it's reasonable he's going to be the number two that's really good it's important to have. Um, anyway, let's move on. We we got a few things to get to. I want to talk about your conversation with Lou Lamorello. How much fun was that? You know what? It was fine. You know, I, everyone's joking about it and everything, but it is, you know, it's fine. I, I think I have a good relationship with Lou, and I thought it was, he hadn't really given an in-depth interview like that in quite a long time this season. I can't remember the last time that he did. I think that there's, a little bit of an aversion in the media to talk to him because he doesn't say a whole lot. But, you know, I think it's, I think it's worthwhile to do once in a while. See, there is definitely that, that notion in the media. I think it is important as in our job to ask him questions. It's his choice, whether he wants to answer them honestly, but it's our job to actually ask and make sure it's on the record. 
he is very good at saying a lot of words and sometimes saying very little at all. Um, I think he's really good at sometimes playing the media that way because he sounds nice. He, you know, speaks to you uh, friendly, like politely. What did you ask him that you wanted to know but didn't end up getting an answer to? Like, what was the one thing you didn't find out that you would have preferred to know? Maybe more about the relationship with Kyle Dubas, I think, is is interesting. You know, we don't know a lot about that. We don't see Kyle around very much anymore. I get the sense that he's mostly involved with the Marlies. Um, it's just, it's an interesting situation where Lamarello's got one year left on his contract as the GM. That's the other thing I wanted to get an answer to is, I mean, like, I, I'm not sure if I asked Lou the right way or not, but I just said, you know, what's the plan after that, that year on your contract? And he wouldn't discuss it at all. I mean, it'd be interesting to know, does he plan to be the GM long, long term? Because people that know Lou say that he's never going to give up control. That's, you know, people that know him well say that he's going to be, they're going to have to boot him out of there to, to get him out of that role. Like he's not going to be, he's not going to turn 81 and be like, Oh, I'm, I'm not the GM anymore. So he's 75 in October. I mean, I know I'm not going to be doing a job like that when I'm 75. I'm, I'm, I want to retire at 63 or 64 and write a book or something, but like, being an NHL GM is hard, even if you have as big of a support staff as Lamarello has. And I know he's got, I've talked to him before. I mean, he's, I think he's got three kids. He's got a whole bunch of grandkids. I know he's got like a lot of family. You know, I just wonder if at some time, at some point he just wants to spend time with them. And it, it, it doesn't seem, I would have liked a, a more clear answer of what the succession plan is. And I think the concern for the Leafs is going to be that if there's never an opening, Kyle Dubas will go somewhere else. See, I was always of the belief uh, when he was hired that he was going to be here longer than three years. Like, I never bought into this notion that he was just going to be here three years and then, you know, he'll take like a senior advisor role or something like that. I bet he sticks around longer. I bet he wants to be here as the GM when they potentially win a cup. I don't think he's going anywhere. And I think it kind of creates potentially like an uncomfortable situation because if it gets to a point where Brendan Shanahan feels like he needs to make a change, is he going to be willing to move Lou Lamorello and, and not necessarily fire him, but moving him, move him into a different position. We know how close that relationship is or seems to be. So it's a weird one. And I, I think it, I don't know, you don't want to be like ageist, but I think there is something to having a general manager who is on top of all the trends in the way to track hockey. And I'm not sure that Lou Lamorello is that guy. I mean, I think we have to be fair in that he's done a relatively good job with what's been in front of him so far. In, I mean, I, I think that Leafs fans have been kind of abused by how, how bad their management has been for so long. I mean, from Ferguson to to uh, Burke to Nonis, I mean, there were so many mistakes that were made by that front office that, you know, it's been kind of a breath of fresh air with how you know, how reasonably intelligent, you know, the Leafs a lot of times make moves now. It's like, yeah, that makes sense. You know, and and there's a, there's a lot more going on in the front office too, than just, I think Lou deciding everything. I mean, I think Mark Hunter has a voice and I think Babcock has a voice and I think Kyle Dubas and the analytics team have a voice, even if it's probably a smaller voice than, than guys like you and I would probably want to see in an organization. I think that's healthy. Um, yeah, you're right. I mean, th- th- that relationship with Lamorello and Shanahan is so interesting because Lamorello's first year in the NHL as a GM, 
shocked the hockey world because they took him right out of college hockey. This never happened before. Put him in charge of, of the Devils, who which was a laughingstock organization. I think they took a lot of heat for doing that. His very first pick, second overall, was Brendan Shanahan. And I think Brendan Shanahan had at least... I mean, he would have to speak this more than me, but I think he had recently lost his father or his father was very, very ill, Shanahan had. And I think Lou was kind of really much like a father figure to the 18-year-old Brendan Shanahan who went into New Jersey. And they grew together into Hall of Famers. And, where, and you know, it was... So there, that relationship there is very, very tight. It's tighter than I think most people have talked about so I don't know that I could ever see him firing him yeah and and I think you hit on uh an important dynamic that seems to exist like in a lot of sports front office these days is they just have like a lot of voices and they try to have like a lot of different insights and maybe that maybe that works you know maybe Lamorello is kind of like the old school guy who can kind of bring perspective experience alongside like people like Dubis we just don't know how it all plays together a couple more things we want to talk a little bit about frederick anderson and i forgot to mention that it was the bab Sox babcock quote of the day earlier that's my mistake the podcast of course is brought to you by bab Sox. visit babsocks.ca and their cool store on mount pleasant um let's talk about william neander uh i wrote a story today is wednesday i wrote a story about neander on the power play he leads the team he's first in the nhl when you you know do power play points per minute uh, per 60 minutes. He's really, really good on the power play. How much of that do you think is that they have Matthews on one side and Neilander on the other? I mean, that's, I like watching their power play. I mean, I like, it's, it's very, it's very dynamic. Yeah. It's the best in the league. We have a story of the athletic coming soon about Jim Hiller, who's the assistant coach under Babcock, who's in charge of the power play. And it's kind of interesting hearing the players talk about that. So People subscribe to The Athletic and check that out. But it's, you know, it's um, part of its personnel. They have so many good offensive players that, like, the number one unit, the best unit of late, hasn't even been the unit with Matthews and Nylander on it, which is crazy because, like you said, Nylander's one of the highest-scoring power play players in the league. They're very dynamic, and the system that they use—this is something that Tyler Dello wrote about last week—is really designed to get shots from in close a lot more. Well, yeah, when you, when you have the four forward look and you, you, instead of having the two points like the way it used to be done, you don't have as many guys just loading up for point shots. Like that was the, when I first started covering the NHL, that was like how every team did it. And now it seems like more and more teams are going to this four forward approach. The thing with Neander that I think is really impressive and like sneaky impressive is how quickly, and it's not just power play, but how quickly it gets a shot off. Like, there's the game against Ottawa last week where Matthews, Matthews like, sucks in the attention of all four centers, and then he fires it cross ice through the seam to Neander, and he has to, like, catch the puck, receive the puck, and then fire it quickly all, in, and basically, like, he almost makes it one motion. So he does that really well, and then, you know, from looking at some video and stuff of him, he scans the ice really well. Like, he sees the ice really well. Like, there was the goal he set up to Komarov uh, on Tuesday night where he's just waiting, 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 waiting. And then, like, he's just above the goal line and he makes the pass to Komarov. And he told me, like, he just saw him kind of sneaking in and then made the play. And if that play wasn't there, he was going to shoot it. So I just think he, I don't know, like, it, it completely changes their power play because they can have those two guys on one and then you have Marner on the other. And suddenly it's like, you basically have two number one power plays. That's a really humongous advantage for them. 
they're playing about the same amount of ice time all year too. So it's, yeah, no, it's it's really really. I I think you hit you hit on it perfectly with Nylander. It's his spatial awareness, which is unbelievable. And his dad had that too. I used to lo- really love to watch Michael Nylander with the puck. Like he was such a good passer. He it's. It's like they used to say about Gretzky that like he knew where every fan was sitting in the stands and all that. Like they just hockey. I think spatial awareness is. You know, Connor McDavid has it too. If you watch the way that he plays, he can think it at, at such a fast speed. Nylander, when you give him, he likes to use, and I you could really see this with the Marlies. He likes to use all of the offensive zone, and I think playing on the power play allows him to do that because there's more room there because there's one fewer player on the other team. The other team's in like a box. So when you use a system that the Leafs have where they've got basically two guys in front of the net, one defenseman at the back, and then you've got Matthews and Nylander as your like freelancers on on the wing, there's a lot of space out there for Nylander to use. He can come all the way down to the goal line. He can come all the way back to the blue line. They can shift all around. He's super comfortable having that space. That's what he wants. Yeah, and what he's really good at is like slowing it down. Like he, And it's the same thing with Matthews. They can have the puck like in really, really tight quarters and be under pressure and not panic and like be able to kind of slow things down, see the ice. Like that goal I mentioned, like he's just waiting and like there the Jets are kind of like trying to figure it out. There's two guys at one point kind of coming his way and he's just waiting, waiting, looking, looking, waiting. And you know, it's funny. I was talking to Leo Komarov about it and he says sometimes they they play around too much, like him and Matthews, sometimes they they're pa- they're trying to do too much. Uh but he said like the way he sees the ice, the plays he can make uh, the ability that he has to handle that space is top notch. Um, last thing before we go, we've talked a lot about Frederick Anderson, so I'm not sure how much new territory there is. He's still struggling. You know, Mike Babcock did not sugarcoat it after the game on Tuesday against Winnipeg. He basically said, you know, they bailed out Frederick Anderson. When does this start becoming like a bigger issue in the city? Is it if they? start losing a lot of games and obviously they have lost some games recently you know what's really interesting with goalies and when I first started covering the team the Leafs were in that stretch where they had just like the most brutal goaltending in the league year after year like the fan there's a huge portion of the fan base and the media that won't blame the goalie like it used to be Gustafson and Jaguar and Toskala and people were like oh but the Leafs are bad defensively it's like like that does impact what's happening with a goalie for sure. But if Frederick Anderson, I think in his last nine games, his save percentage is like 876 or it's, yeah, that's since January 1st, 894 since January 1st. Like that's not all bad defense. And like, so so I'm, I'm tweeting during the game that Anderson's numbers and I'm putting them out there and I get a lot of responses. People like, why are you going after Anderson? The defense is bad. He doesn't have a lot of help. And then we go to the postgame press conference, and one of the first things Babcock says is Anderson, basically Anderson sucked. Is not what he said, but like that's basically what he said. We had to bail Freddie out, and some games he bails us out, and some games we bail him out. His numbers are bad enough now for a long enough stretch that it's costing them points, and it might cost them the playoff spot. I mean, they need him to be, for the money he's making, they need him to be a league average goalie, and his numbers now are lower than that. I think he's at 913 on the year, and it's been steadily coming down. He's been very, very streaky. Brutal first month, really good middle, middle two months, November, December, and then bad two months again. They needed they need the good Anderson to show up here real quick because McElhaney has outplayed him, which is insane. 
Well, you just can't have it both ways. Like you can't, the point of having a good goaltender is to make saves when there are breakdowns, there are going to be breakdowns like that. Uh, I forget. I think it was Jim Neal was talking about the goalies in Dallas, or maybe it was, I don't know where the hell it was, but it was some GM basically say, or it was Carolina. And, and I think they were basically saying, you know, we're giving up a lot of chances. Uh, it's not the goalie's fault. Carolina for one gives up the fewest shots in the league. Um, and you have a good goalie to make big saves. Like it's not just to make the, the easy saves. You and I both talked, even when he was playing really well, that we're not going to be able to judge this contract until one year's done, two years done, three years done. This could be like a, a simmering issue if this is what he is. If he's this up and down and all over the place, you need a better backup. They need a better backup. Like if I've been looking at their cap situation, I think they have about 10 million where they, they can maneuver if, well, I mean, I, I think they're going to trade Tyler Bozak to be perfectly honest, and that'll free up more room. And there'd be, there's an easy fit there if you move Nylander to center. But let's say they've got $10 million room. I think you've got six you can spend on uh, another defenseman. I don't know who that's going to be, but let's just say in theory they make a trade and they can add that much more money up for a defenseman. You've got two, two and a half million I think you can spend on a really good two-way or defensive center, which is what I would do. I think if Brian Boyle's available and you can get him for two-year contract at two or two and a half million dollars a year, you do it. The reason, we talked about this last week. I don't need to go into that again. But like basically Babcock needs that guy. He needs a good center he can play on the penalty kill because without it it's just it's really hurting the Leafs playing Ben Smith as much as they have been and playing the goat and um and then they've got another two million that I think should be spent on a good backup goaltender like don't go get a goalie goaltender that's makes 600 or 650 that you don't know what he is don't get it don't re-sign McElhaney like no matter what numbers McElhaney puts up this year no matter how many horseshoes he has up his ass and how good his numbers are. We know what McElhaney is based on his numbers the last five years. Get a good backup goalie. Do I think we did talk about this before, but like I think they really got to spend the money and get someone that can spell Anderson more than this. But that really changes the conversation about like what he is. Maybe he's not that guy who can play 60 games and be like elite. Maybe like maybe we maybe we just know. Maybe he's just one of those guys who you sort of have to split a little bit maybe a little bit tilted more, like not to the degree that it was in Anaheim for him with Gibson, but maybe, maybe in that same direction. I don't know. But like, what's the problem with that? Like to me, I like, if I was a GM, I would sleep better at night if I had two guys and it's like, well, like if this guy's bad, the other guy's going to play. And at least like your chances of the guy being, of you getting good goaltending when you have two guys that might be able to do it are way higher. Like I look at, Look at Calgary. Like, if they just went all in on Elliott and he was as bad as he was in the first 40, like, at least Johnson came in and, and played better. I mean, there's examples of that all over the league. And I don't think Anderson is so good that you just put everything all on him. Maybe he plays 50 games, the other guy plays 32, but you get better goaltending than they're getting this year. Do you know what it is? Teams like to know that they have a guy who they can count on, even if that's not the case. That's why when, when a goalie plays well, they rush to sign him long-term. Because I think the fear is if... We get good. If my team gets good and we don't have a guy that we think can play the position, then we're effed. I don't know if I can swear on this podcast, but you know what I mean? Like, that's the fear I think teams have. Like, Jonathan Quick plays well in the playoffs and they sign him to this 10 year contract because, like, we need to make sure that's the one thing we can't mess around with. We've got to have that goalie. You know what I mean? You know what I think it is? I think that there have been a lot of executives that have like lost their jobs or been fired or let, that have like, they they know if you don't have goaltending, you have nothing. 
Like if you have a goalie that's an eight seventy five goalie, you're totally pooched. Look at all these teams that fire their coach. Like there's people writing like, "Wow, they're this changed team." It's like St. Louis is a really good example. They didn't suddenly just become the good team again. Suddenly, Jake Allen is playing out of his mind. Anyway, we've got to wrap up. We will be back next week. The podcast is brought to you by Bab Socks. James has got his Bab Socks on, as usual. Go to babsocks.ca, check out the store, and check out next week's podcast, and then check out The Athletic. Good stuff there. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in to The Leaf Report. Follow the guys on Twitter at Jonas Siegel and at Myrtle. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.